So does your career energize you with life or does it drain you? Recent Gallup polls show that a whopping 70% of us feel disengaged in the workplace. There's just gotta be a better way. Welcome to our authentic careers where it is my job to uncover the ideas and strategies that can help you become better aligned with your career. I'm your host, Gert Sabar, and I interview people like you and me about the twists and turns in their career paths so that we can all achieve greater clarity, meaning, and fulfillment in ours. So if ever there was a guest after my own heart, I'd have to put Allison Downey as top among them. For those of us whose career paths have not been on the straight and narrow, for those of us who have felt the pains that come with jumping around from job to job or profession to profession, and for those of us who have perhaps struggled to weave together the pieces that make up our professional careers, Allison's tale, I promise you, is a very refreshing one. Allison's journey took her from earning a master's of fine arts degree and working in editorial at Random House to politics, where she quickly became the managing director of Elliot Spitzer's gubernatorial campaign, and by the way, was also there for his equally swift fall from grace, to business school, to Wall Street, to a nonprofit, to starting her own company, and now to being on the verge of publishing her first book, a book that tackles head-on the distressing career challenges that women in particular are forced to contend with as they near or enter motherhood. By all accounts, Allison is moved by her very personal search for meaning, and what I loved about our conversation is that in one part of it, she clears up quite perfectly a distinction about this idea of meaning where I think a lot of us get lost, that there's a real difference between joining an organization whose work is having an impact in the world and the work that you're personally doing either in that organization or otherwise. The two are not the same. Okay, let's get to it. Here's Allison Downey. Rock and roll. Well, Allie, thank you, first of all, for taking the time to do this. No, my pleasure. I have a friend who, like, I have a lot of friends who are very interested in this particularly, like, um, what it looks like when you are not on a linear path, but have done a whole bunch of different things and still wound up um, in very, very interesting places, or wound up in interesting places because you have not taken a linear path. So I don't know, have you ever, I mean, have you experienced that pain of, of feeling like a dilettante? Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Totally. How has that struck you? What have you done with it? Well, so the, the, the toughest question to answer, I think, for people who've had a pretty varied path is, what do you do? Um, right. I do. I've done a lot of things. Uh, and when I try and tell the story of how I got from you know my MFA in fiction writing through publishing to politics to my MBA to Wall Street to nonprofits to entrepreneurship to writing a book, it sounds sometimes to me in my own head like I couldn't stick with anything long enough to um, to really commit to it and that I'm uncommitted and that I uh, get bored easily, which is completely true. I do, I do get bored easily, but I, I sometimes internalize it in my own head as a negative thing to um, have moved from one thing to another. And, it, and you know, like the terms are, the, the derogatory terms are things like fickle um, right. or flitted from one thing to the next. And uh, you know, I don't know if it's a, a distinctly female thing to judge oneself for being, um, having a little bit more of a diverse path. Uh, 
or it's something that everyone who has taken um, a number of different roads feels at some point. So Ali, looking back at that, um, and looking back at that path that you have so far, have you been able to draw any threads through it? Yeah, and and, <laughs> and in part, the reason I'm able to, to draw a thread through it is because I need to draw a thread through it. Yeah. So I've looked for the threads to try and uncover them because I need to be able to tell a story of why an investor should invest in my startup when it does not seem on the surface like I've ever done anything related to it. Uh, because investors are looking for a track record. They're looking for people who have uh, domain expertise and uh, proven themselves in one of, the, you know, one of the areas that is directly tied to, to what they're doing with their startup. And you know, for me, the, the threat is um, it's entrepreneurship. Yeah. And even in jobs where I was, uh, or, you know, I wasn't working for a startup or in my own company, they were jobs that had an, required an entrepreneurial mindset that you, you, know, you were given some tools and you had to build a thing yourself. Allie, let's let's take a little bit of a step back. Do you ever think about the concept of purpose or mission or what it is that you're doing here on this planet? Yes, all the time. So I, um, I think being a parent has really amplified that for me. Yeah. And I always, I always wanted to do something meaningful. I never really knew what I meant by meaningful, but meaningful was always something that was in the back of my mind. It's something that was important to me. I wanted to. Um, can I put my stamp on the world in some way? But being a parent, I feel like it's not just about, you know, aiming for an overall career with purpose or meaning, but making sure every day has some level of meaning because you have to get up and leave your kid behind every single day or every work day. And it just made it so much more tangible and real for me that I needed to be doing something professionally that was valuable to me. And you know, made me feel good about what I was doing professionally. I, I had a conversation with someone recently about how I was in this really demanding job um, and it felt like it was going to be the worst thing in the world uh, when I had young kids. But then I realized actually after having kids and changing jobs that worse than being in a really demanding job and having young children is being in a job that's totally unsatisfying and having young children. Right. Right. And, you know, if you're, if you're going and you're logging all this time in front of a computer in an office all day and you don't feel good about how you spent that time at the end of those eight or ten hours or whatever it is, it just it grates on you in a way that, um, that I, don't think, I don't think you appreciate as much when you're younger because you're thinking, you know, there's something else out there for me that's going to be more rewarding. I'm quote-unquote quitting my time. But once you have kids, you, it's, it's harder to, to put in your time in the same way. Allie, when was the first time that you can remember this idea of of uh, wanting your you know wanting your existence to have meaning? Um, honestly, like, I, I, it's one of those things where I don't even remember when I started thinking that way. Yeah. So you, know, you think back to like what was my first memory as a child? Um, and I remember when I was a little girl talking about how I wanted to be the second female Supreme Court justice, and I was like eight years old, and I yeah. didn't. I didn't even really know what that meant, but I knew it was something important. And I always wanted to do something important. It, when you have that idea of wanting to do something meaningful, how does that, um, kind of looking back now on your childhood and you know high school, college, how, how does that impact your decision-making process? 
So I have lost sight of that, um, you know, that sense of doing something meaningful at various different points in my career. Yeah. And interestingly, those were the times that I was least happy in my jobs, and I didn't realize it until much later. Um, I would say that my time on Wall Street was the biggest, <laughs> the biggest failure in that sense. Um, but then the first job that I took after my son was born, uh, really, you know, it was the same thing. And I was working in a nonprofit then, so you know, I was I was doing something on a day to day basis that was impactful and that it was changing kids' lives and it was helping kids in high poverty areas get better educations. Right, but. I didn't feel like the work that I was doing there was meaningful. That I didn't feel like it was moving the needle. Yeah. So you know, there's there's meaning and and purposeful work that has an impact on the world, and then there's work that has that where you're actually able to personally have an impact, and they're not one and the same. That's right. And when um, can you tell the listeners what it is that you do today? Yeah, so I run a startup called WeSpring. We help new and expecting parents get advice from their friends about what they need for their family. So taking all of those complexities and boiling it down in a way that allows you to just replicate what your friends are doing who have gotten through those most stressful months and years already. Yep. So I'm going to ask this question from a different angle. Are you today in your career where you thought you would be when you were younger? So I'm in a very different place than I thought I would be yeah. when I was younger, um, and I think that. But but I'm doing I'm I'm doing something that I love and can't imagine something I'd rather be doing. But I I run a startup that's you know a struggling startup the way most startups are, and right. it's stressful. And every month I worry about how we're going to make payroll the following month, uh, and. I, I never would have envisioned that I would be in a place that felt so insecure and precarious at this point in my career. Yeah. Um, but I, like when I'm, when I'm asked, do you, do you want to think about something else or is this the time for you to consider moving on? There literally is nothing I would rather be doing. It's not this, you know, it's not this romantic, you know, oh, there's nothing I'd rather be doing, but Really, in, in brass tax terms, like there is nothing else I can imagine that would be as fulfilling to me as what I'm doing right now, as miserable as it sometimes can be. Right. And so, um, but you said it doesn't, it's not where you thought you would be when you were younger. What was it that you thought or that you, where you would be? Yeah, you know, I, I thought that I would, I thought the path to pursue and be, um, you know, the marker for success is to move continually up a ladder in one particular industry or um, you know, job function until you hit that executive level and you can be a leader and you can have an impact on an organization and a group of people because you have clients there. Uh, and you know, to my point earlier, it's it's not linear and it doesn't have to be linear. And, you know, I jumped ladders a few times and every time you jump ladders, you are at risk of having to move down a couple runs. Yep. But there also were times in my career where I jumped ladders and was able to actually move up a few runs. But I left a job in publishing when I was 24 years old and within a year I had tripled my salary. Uh, because I had gotten onto a ladder that um, that the the rungs were closer together, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
And, um, you know, when I jumped from that ladder to the Wall Street ladder, uh, I knew that the ladder climbed a lot higher. Uh, so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't top out in the same way as I would have if I stayed on in politics for, for a long time. Walk us back a little bit. What did you study in college? I was an English major. And then what did you decide to do right out of school? So after college, I went and got my MFA in creative writing and fiction, which is probably the least practical thing uh, that you can do with $60,000 immediately after graduating college. But I had this I had this moment where, and I had been encouraged by a professor who I really loved and admired to consider applying for an MFA program. And she had done her MFA and then went on to become a college professor. And I applied because I felt like I should apply just to see where this goes. And then once I get into the program, I I was reluctant. I, I had some doubts about going into it, but I... I knew that it was my one window in which I'd be able to do this because, you know, you get later on in your career and the idea of taking two years off to write um, is is a little bit untenable. Uh, And I knew that if I didn't do it and follow through with it, I would probably regret it forever. And I don't necessarily recommend doing things so you don't regret not doing them. Uh But, you know, in my case, even though I got to the end of the program, I did not really find it a valuable experience. It did not get me anywhere in on the career track that I thought I wanted to be on at that time. Um, You know, it's it's 15 years later now and I am publishing a book in two months. Right. And and I never would have expected that that the work that I had done in my early twenties would give me the credibility to, you know, 15 years later, write a business book. Yeah. And so, um, what even got you to that, uh, to be an English major in the first place? So I, uh, I love books. I've always loved books and I, um, I explored a lot of things when I first got to college. I had a short lived, um, short lived time in some computer science classes, which now, you know, I'm kicking myself for not (laughs) having actually learned to code when I was 19 years old. Uh, but I wanted to, I, I, you know, I was, I felt like it was a little bit selfish, but I wanted to study stuff that I loved. Yeah, and I loved reading, and I loved writing, and um, you know it. it, uh, it you know, sometimes maybe a little bit hedonistic, but you know, you do get great analytical skills, and being able to you know write well is such a valuable and undervalued at the same time skill. Yeah, can I ask, Allie, what did your parents do, or do they do? My mom's a teacher, and my stepdad uh, ran a number of different small businesses. Uh, so I did see that entrepreneurial example in my life when I was growing up, that he had a record store back when there were record stores. Uh, and then he owned the concession stand at some bingo hall. And then he ran a business uh, you know, managing the garbage, uh, basically, at, at the beach in the summer. Uh-huh. So um, so very different things, very varied things, um, but things that I think he always felt a lot of, um, a lot of uh, reward. He had a very rewarding experience. And how would you describe the impact that they have had on your career and career decision-making processes, either explicitly or kind of implicitly by watching them? So, um, 
they thought I was crazy when I wanted to quit my job at Random House and move to upstate New York to work for a congressional candidate that no one had heard of and had very small chance of winning her race. Um, that, you know, they, um, you know, they valued stability to an extent. And I, I had this job that was what all English majors aspire to, or a lot of English majors aspire to, that I was working in editorial at Random House. Uh, and it, they, they were kind of shocked and taken aback, but of course, like said that they were, they would support me in whatever I wanted to do. And, um, you know, 10 years later when I needed to call my parents and tell them that I was after soon after having a baby and, you know, with a husband in grad school that I was going to quit my reliable, well-paying job in a nonprofit to start a company. Um, I, I was just as nervous as I had been to tell them that I wanted to leave, you know, New York city and go work in a congressional campaign. Yeah. And, you know, when, when I, I you know, got up the cars to talk to them about it. And then one of the first things my mom said to me was, you know, you make the best career decisions that don't look to anyone else like good career decisions. Right. <laughs> that, you know, they're like, you, you nailed it when you left your publishing job and went and worked in politics. And that took you really far in your career. And, you know, maybe it's going to be a little bit shaky for you for a little while, but we feel just as confident that you are going to be able to turn this into something really fruitful too. When you, um, so after you get the MFA, you go to Random House? I went to Random House. I um, I worked for the cookbook editor there, and that was an intentional decision to not do fiction um, because that's what I had studied and that's what I was writing at the time. Uh, because I wanted to make sure that my day job wasn't going to feel too close to what I wanted to do, you know, in my own time. Yeah. And um, the the turning point for me there, though, as much as I loved it and I loved food and I loved food writing, um, there was one night that I was at my desk really late on a Friday and I was probably the only one still left on the floor. And I was looking at these page mock-ups for a cookbook called Pure Chocolate, um, which I, I still remember this so clearly. Uh-huh. And I was sitting there agonizing at like 7.30 on a Friday night about whether the the yield for the recipe, you know, serve six people should go at the top of the page or the bottom of the page. And that was my, that was my light bulb moment that I, I didn't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And I was okay doing a job that didn't make me a lot of money. I was okay doing a job that required me to work really long hours. Uh, and I was okay doing a job that I didn't love and didn't feel all that rewarding to me, um, but I couldn't do all three at once. Yeah. So, so I I left and I worked for a political candidate and made almost no money and worked really long hours, but I felt like I was doing something meaningful. Got it. And um, and how did how did the political candidate come into your purview? How did politics come into your purview? So it was um, it was two thousand through it was late two thousand three, early two thousand four, and it was a presidential campaign. So there was lots of talk and excitement around that. Uh, and I had started just getting a little bit plugged in uh, in New York City to um, you know people who were organizing this you know at the time, all the passion around Howard Dean and. There were young people mobilizing in a way that surprised me in, in a really good way. And I met this woman who was running for Congress and, you know, got to know her and her campaign and organized a political fundraiser for her. And over the course of, of the time planning for it, her campaign manager said, you know, would you ever consider leaving your job and coming 
to work for us um, and coming and moving to upstate New York. And I said, no way. Uh, And then I had that moment with the cookbook yield. Uh, And that was, you know, over the span of a couple of weeks that all that happened, that um, the the door opened. And then I had this, um, this, this moment where I felt totally dissatisfied. And then I just jumped into it and went, went head first. And what was your job with her? I was her finance director uh, and finance director in politics is a euphemism for fundraiser. Right. Um, and I went from that on to another political campaign. So even though she lost um, and lost quite badly, we had raised enough money on the campaign that, um, that, you know, pretty much anyone in your politics is willing to take a meeting with me. Yep. And I had five job offers within maybe a week of the election of, of her Disney election. Uh, and I took a job working for Elliot Spitzer yep. and I worked my way up very, very fast. And that's one of the things that I always love most about politics uh, is that, you know, there's, it's not time served. Your ability to advance is not tied to the amount of time that you've that's done right. or, or done the work. It's what the results are that you can get. So, over two years, I went from being the most junior person on the fundraising t- team to running his re-election campaign. Yeah. And you know, when I was 27, I was put in charge of the inauguration and given a $1.5 million budget and a mandate to do something that was different and exciting. And that was it. And I could, I could just take that and run with it and do whatever I wanted. And I still think of that as, as my jubilee that... You know, Jimmy Fallon was, was the MC, and James Taylor performed, and Natalie Merchant, and we had 20 different restaurants from all over New York State do this food festival, and right. it was just really exciting and empowering. Yeah. And, uh, you know, still probably the, the most exciting thing, or the most exciting single thing that I've done um, professionally. So you're doing this, and then you're having the most exciting thing you've done professionally, and then it comes to a most exciting... And rapid end. Yeah. yeah. What 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 is that like? So um, I continue to admire Elliot Spitzer um, and respect him, and he was very loyal to his staff, and I admire and and prize that. Um, but he was a terrible governor, uh-huh. and he was a terrible governor because he operated like a bull in a china shop, and very quickly lost the respect of most of the elected officials in Albany and as that happened lost the respect of a lot of New Yorkers so even before the spectacular end to his governorship um, things were pretty miserable Um, I I was getting such terrible headaches all the time that I started seeing a special dentist who injected Novocaine into my head that's how stressful my job was at that time and it's because really I was um, the can't the the governor's office was always very particular about not mixing politics and government. Yep. And I respect that and think that's wonderful in the way things should be. But that meant that all of our donors, many of whom were very respected business leaders, couldn't get anyone in the governor's office to return their phone calls. Right. So when they were upset about something that had happened or, you know, thought it was unseemly that he was dropping F-bombs on the phone with legislators or thought it was crazy that he wanted to do driver's licenses for illegal immigrants, yep. um, it was my phone that rang. And 
you know, got to the point where I wanted to, I, I joked that I wanted to have a pre-recorded message on my phone saying like, please press one if you think that it's unseemly that the governor <laughs> is dropping F-bombs. Please press two if you think that he needs to drop this ridiculous fight with Joe Bruno. Please press three if you think that driver's licenses for illegal immigrants is crazy. Right. Um, and, uh, and I had to raise money through all of that. So right. it was it wasn't just I need to like put my head down and go to work. I needed to pick up the phone and call people who were very unhappy with him and ask them for money. What does this period of time do to this idea of my meaning in life? Oh, it totally it totally turned me off politics. Yeah. And when I ultimately got to business school, I had conversations with my colleagues about meaningfulness in your job and your passion and trying to turn your passion into your job. And the way I talked about it, and I still remember these conversations really vividly, is that I had tried to turn my passion into my job a few times, that I did it um, going to work at Random House, that my passion was books. And by the end of the time that I was at Random House, I didn't read for pleasure. And I had that, you know, 8 p.m. moment with the cocoa fields. And then I was really passionate about politics. And I tried to turn that into my career. And by the, by the end, you know, the idea of going to a grassroots rally or, you know, following the political news was so, so unpleasant to me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, if through that, I said, you know, I want to find something that I'm good at. And it's going to make me money so I can do the things that I'm passionate about in the time that I'm not working. Yeah. So is that is that the ultimate lesson from that sort of making passion your work equation? Well, I think so. But then I, you know, I wound up proving myself wrong again uh -huh. when, I, when I went into Wall Street and hated everything that I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis and was in this toxic culture that was completely unfriendly to women and had this awful experience of pregnancy discrimination and like all of the bad things happened while I was working on Wall Street. And I had to, I had to reevaluate the fact that I had reevaluated the thing about passion yeah. um, and I you know I think I think what it comes down to actually is probably most important is surrounding yourself with people you admire and respect and working with people that you admire admire and respect and that was one of the things that really was missing for me on Wall Street that I I looked around and I didn't see very much creativity and I didn't see passion from anyone um, and you know you don't have to I don't think you have to um, you know, feel that, that the exact work of your day-to-day -day job or the mission of your day-to-day -day job has to be something that is tied to a direct, you know, avocational interest of yours. Yep. But I think you, you do need to have, um, you do need to have some passion for the work that you're doing. Uh, let me ask you this on a, on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is a total non-issue and 10 is a big, dark, gloomy shadow. How large a shadow would you say that, um, financial considerations have had over your career path to date? So, um, so it's, it's always been important and it's always been a factor, um, but never in the big, dark, gloomy shadow way. Okay. Um, you know, my, my, I was you know, the child of a single mother and money was always a concern when I was growing up. And, you know, one of who, one of the big life lessons my mother taught me early on is that you always have to be able to provide for yourself and you have to build yourself a good safety net and you have to have a cushion and backup and all of those things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in, in the time that I was working in politics, I, I got there, but I, I, 
made a lot of money when I was working in politics right. because I worked really hard and I succeeded very fast. And like I said, I, you know, I tripled my salary, um, in, you know, the first year out of publishing and then I doubled it again pretty soon after that. Yep. So, um, so, so I stopped worrying about it in the same way. But on the other side, I was surrounding myself, or, or not surrounding myself, but I was surrounded by all of these incredibly successful people who had made tons of money. Many of them were self-made. Um, and it completely skewed my sense of what success looked like and what financial comfort looked like. Yeah. I remember having this um, this moment where I, you know, we were talking about a family that I worked with regularly, and they were lovely, and I got along so well with them. Um, and you know, I, I was talking to someone else and said, Oh, this family's not wealthy. And it's a family that, you know, they, they, you know, spend a month every summer traveling, going to interesting places and, you know, like renting out a sailboat in Thailand and they have three luxury cars and their kids were in private school and they lived in a beautiful home. And I'd stop and hear them as wealthy because I was looking at other people in comparison and seeing, you know, their um, $100,000 donation that they made at the drop of a hat. Um, and, you know, a luxury car no longer looked to me like wealth. A G4 looks to me like wealth. Right. And, and I, had to, I had to shake myself out of that mindset and that mentality. And um, it's, you know, one of the reasons that I did uh, look for a job coming out of business school that was going to make me enough money to do the things that I about. Um, but if you are miserable, you know, 40 to 60 hours of your week, you're going to be too depressed to do things that you care about. In, yeah. in your time. You know, maybe you have money for them, um, but you know, you're not going to have the energy for them. Yeah. So how do you reconcile, again, this sort of idea of meaning and this idea of money and finances? Yeah. Um, we moved to a cheaper place. That was one thing that yep. we did to, to impact that. So after, um, after 15 years in New York city, I moved with my family to Boulder and that was incited by preschool in New York where, you know, I was going to school and was surrounded by these, the, the wives of these hedge fund masters of the universe. And not only didn't want to expose myself to that, but didn't want to expose my kids to that. Yep. And I think if you if you are thinking about the context that you're in and the people that you're surrounding yourself with, can go a long way in helping you adjust your perception of what you actually need. Um, there are those great studies about how people who are um, you know making eighty thousand dollars a year, where the average income in their neighborhood is sixty thousand, are very happy much, much happier than the people who are making $200,000 a year, but everyone in their neighborhood is making $300,000 a year. Yeah. Um, so I, I think context is important. I think that um, you have to live within the reality that is, you know, the world that we're in, where childcare is more expensive than college in a lot of right. places. So if you have children, your financial standing has to, has to be a big part of the equation of, of how that works because you can't afford childcare on a lot of salaries these days. And, um, and, you know, same at the other end of the spectrum and, you know, paying for, for kids college education. So, um, I think you do have to make more compromises as a parent, but you also can, I think, make some choices that are going to, 
um, free you up to live a little bit more freely. So you're do the politics thing. You go back to business school. You do the Wall Street thing. How how do you get to starting your own business? Um, so after my son was born, I uh, set out to look for a new job. But I had that awful experience in Wall Street of pregnancy discrimination, and I decided I wanted to go do something that would be a home run success for me pretty much no matter what. I, I talked to a headhunter and I said, I want to be able to do this job with two hands tied behind my back and blindfolded. And I took a job at a nonprofit uh, fundraising, which, you know, I had raised tens of million dollars uh, for Democratic candidates. I could fundraise. I knew how to fundraise. That was something yeah. I knew how to do. Um, and it was relatively lucrative um, that I certainly could afford childcare on this salary. And, you know, it was meaningful in that... Like I said, I, the work that I was doing was helping kids get better educations, helping poor kids get better educations. Yep. Um, but the problem really was that the work that I was doing didn't feel like it was moving the needle, and it wasn't. It wasn't. I didn't feel like it was having an impact on the organization in a way that was important to me. And I had this my my epitome moment there was sitting in a room with forty middle managers at some conference center in St. Louis for an offsite. And looking around and realizing that I never was going to be able to, to affect change in this organization. Yep. And that the work that I was doing wasn't going to make a difference or a meaningful difference. And that really is what um, what was the lead up to my startup. And and that was actually, my, my husband and I had jointly started building this company um, at night uh, and, and on the weekends. And, and that's really what... Um, ties into what I was saying about how, you know, even worse than being in a really demanding job is a job that's completely unsatisfying to you because I did my day job and then was so bored by it that after my son went to bed, I worked from seven to midnight, um, doing this other thing and getting this company started. Yeah. and I had that, that epitome where I realized I couldn't do my day job anymore and took a big flying leap into entrepreneurship and knew that I wasn't going to be getting a salary for a while um, and uh, you know, knew that we were going to be depleting our savings in a really big way, but felt like it was a long-term investment that I was investing in our kids' future by taking this leap that was going to help me be more happy and productive and excited about being a parent because I liked what I did every day. Did I hear you correctly? You mentioned discrimination uh, in Wall Street. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so when I was um, when I was pregnant with my first child, I was working on Wall Street at Credit Suisse, and I was killing it. I mean, I, I hate to use that term, killing and crushing it, but I was bringing in billionaire families to meet at the bank with the CEO and COO of the private bank, and uh, doing all doing all of the things that were a clear marker for success, yeah. and had a meeting with the managing director uh, for my division uh, in New York, and. He sat me down and said that he felt that I was the best hope for success out of our my my MBA class because it's a, a field with notoriously high attrition. That's something like eighty percent attrition within two years. Yep. 
So it meant a lot that, you know, he thought that I was going to be a success. And I was, I was pregnant at the time, and I, I remember I had just told him that I planned to only take six weeks of parental leave because I wanted to get back to it right away, and I wanted to continue growing the business and building the business. Um, and it was really only a few weeks after that that I had some pregnancy complications and was told by my doctor that I needed to be off my feet, period, full stop. Yep. Um, that I was 23 weeks pregnant, and if I didn't, there was a chance I would have the baby early, and there was a good chance the baby would not survive if I had the baby that early. So after that happened, I started reaching out to my office. Uh, I mean, I, I immediately called my office and emailed my office from that doctor's meeting, and I left messages basically saying that I, that I had this appointment with my doctor, my doctor said I had to be off my feet, but I wanted to keep working, and I wanted to talk to someone there about how to make that happen yep. uh, and how I could get the support that I needed to continue doing all the things that I'd been doing up until that point. And no one called me back. Wow. Uh, I called every other day um, and emailed every other day for two weeks and got no response. Your, uh, your manager, no one? No one. Wow. HR, my manager, the managing director, nobody would return my phone calls. Uh, and... I finally wound up asking my doctor if she had had any patients who had had a similar experience. And you know, so, I, like, not only am I now lying in bed Googling about preterm labor, but I'm now lying in bed Googling about employee, employment discrimination, yeah. and pregnancy discrimination. And uh, my doctor advised that I copy her, on, start copying her on my emails to my office so I could, you know, put put it out there very clearly that I was capable of continuing to work. It just needed to be at home. Yep. And that's when I finally heard from HR and they, um, they called me and said on Monday, here's the phone number you should call, um, to initiate your, your, um, your disability leave and no call from a manager, no call from anyone who worked within my division. Um, and you know, that was the last time I heard from anyone at Crowd Wow. So uh, I knew after that that there there was no real hope for me to be able to go back. That anything I had done in the you know the time that I had been there after my MBA was going to dissolve if I was completely offline for the second half of my pregnancy and then a little time to recover afterward. Um, and it was just so disheartening that I you know I I looked at the ratios on Wall Street and in my own office as a challenge. I looked at it as a challenge in the best sense of the word that, you know, I had more metal, I was more determined, you know, I was going to prove everyone wrong that you couldn't do this. And I was empowered by it. And I was, I felt like I was the last person on earth who would ever be the victim of pregnancy discrimination. Right. I still wound up the victim of pregnancy discrimination. Right. Wow. That was what led to my book. Yeah, I was going to so, say. Yeah. Um, so uh, after um, after running Spring for a year, or a little more than a year, started talking to some friends who were in publishing who said, you should write a book and you should market it to the people who are Spring users. And I certainly did not write a book. Who are what? Um, who are Spring users. So, um, so write a book that's going to be tied into the audience that you've already built for yep. your startup. Got it. And the last thing on earth I wanted to sit down and write was a manual for picking baby products. Um, that, that feels like the opposite of meaningful to me. And the experience that I had was still really raw and um, still so um, kind of important to my self-identity. 
and writing a book to help other women avoid that very same situation felt like um, something that would help me start to heal <laughs> from yeah. that terrible, terrible yeah. experience. And, um, and I, you know, I set out to write the book that bridges the gap between lean in and what to expect when you're expecting. Because uh, the pregnancy books that are out there right now don't take into account that you have a life going on outside your body. Yeah. And how did you find that experience of writing that book? It was exhausting. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, I was kind of miserable and hated it. I remember, you know, at the end of every day, I had such bad neck and shoulder cramps because I would kind of sit clenched at my computer all day typing. And it's isolating. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I decided not to pursue writing after my MFA, that I, I, I need to be around people. I need to interact with people. Um, but... Um, you know, I loved, I loved having a finished product. So yep. um, the day-to-day the -day challenges and exhaustion and misery, um, you know, was completely worth it for the finished product. Yeah. The book's called Here's the Plan. Here's the Plan, your practical, tactical guide to advancing your career through pregnancy and parenthood. So now that you have that finished product, how, how are you feeling about the concept of meaning? So I think, like I said, that meaning is even more important when you are a parent um, because you need to leave your kids behind every morning to go out and do that work. And, um, you know, I talk in the book about how it's a book for people um, who want their jobs to be more than just a paycheck. And, you know, going back to work isn't something that they have to do or, you know, they, they probably do have to do it, but it's something that they want to do. And if it's something that you want to do, it's something that you want to make sure you can continue doing and succeeding at. Yep. And we need to do so much in this country to make it easier for parents and mothers in particular to succeed professionally. Allie, last question here. Knowing what you know today, how would you advise your younger self? Oh, that's such a good one. Um, I, think I, I think I would you know, tell myself to be less worried about taking risks, that, um, that risks pay off in a lot of instances. And yes, they're scary and risky and that's why they're called risks. Uh, but it's, um, it, you know, it's not something to, to shy away from or be fearful of. Uh, and that sometimes the, you know, the, the biggest risk yields the biggest reward. Actually, one more question for you. How do you deal with the fears associated with the risk that you've taken? Uh, <laughs> I am a perpetually anxious person and it probably manifests in all these terrible ways that are not good for me, okay. like the, the like terrible headaches that I needed Novocaine injections for. Right. Um, but, um, you know, the, the old cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and you know, all of the other modes of therapy where you have to really, you have to let your mind go to the worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trying to block off that worst case scenario and ignore it or just focus on it um, blindly is not going to, it's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to do anything for you. But if you back into that worst case scenario and then start to understand how that truly is like the worst case scenario, meaning that it is an unlikely scenario. Um, and also think about, you know, like what's the worst thing that happens as a result of that worst case scenario and really trying to uncover what the true fears are that, you know, I'm afraid of failure. Well, why are you afraid of failure? Well, I'm afraid of failure because people won't respect me. Well, why do you want people to respect you? Well, I want people to respect me because I want them to want to be around me and kind of moving it, moving it in that direction. Allison Downey, fantastic conversation. This is awesome. Great. Thank you. 
thank you for tuning into this episode of Our Authentic Careers with me, your host, Gerd Sabar. If you like what you just heard, I hope you'll let your family, friends, and colleagues know all about this little podcast. And since it's early days here at the OAC, your rating and especially your review of the show on iTunes would also be hugely helpful and very much appreciated. If you think you or someone you know would be a great guest, please, 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 please don't hesitate to reach out at ourauthenticcareers.com.